Good morning, saints. Anybody know what book we're in? Genesis chapter 31, starting in verse 22. Cold water is good, and we know the fountain of life comes from God Almighty. What a good reminder. Today we're going to be looking at uh, what I've titled, Sin in the Camp. Recall from the previous lesson, a couple of weeks ago, Michael was teaching, Jacob left Laban's farm under less than familiar circumstances. Uh, Verse 20 from chapter 31 says that uh, Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian and that he, Jacob, did not tell him, Laban, that he intended to flee. So other translations say that Jacob deceived Laban in escaping without notice. You recall that God had blessed Jacob with lots of flocks. And while over the 24 years or so that Jacob had worked for him, he had prospered Laban quite a bit. But in the last several years, he prospered Jacob more than he did Laban. And Laban was not real happy with this. So Laban heads out. To find Jacob. And that's where we pick up in our chapter, in our passage rather, going to read the first three verses, 22 through 25. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Jacob over, or Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. So here's the scene. Three days after Jacob sneaked out, Laban found out. Somebody came and told him. Laban saddled up. And he caught up in a week. He traveled about twice as fast as Jacob had. Jacob had a large clan, lots of sheep and goats. Laban just had himself and some brethren, as it's called in our passage. He had some men with him, people from his clan. So he's able to travel faster. So Jacob had been on the road for 10 days by the time Laban caught up with him. John Gill says that he traveled about 380 miles from where Laban's place was to the mountains in Gilead. Ten, ten days, 380 miles. That's a pretty stout travel. I looked at a map and I thought it was about 250 miles, but John Gill, he may have studied it closer than I did. So, we recall from way earlier in Genesis, when Abraham was sojourning and he ran into this king of the Philistines called Abimelech, and he gave up his wife, and Yahweh came to Abimelech in a dream and warned him not to put his hands on that woman. So God shows up in a dream to another pagan from Syria, and he warns him, don't you be talking trash. Don't try any deception, good or bad talk, with Jacob. Now, Don't flatter him. Don't judge him. I think that's what God was telling him in this dream. Because deceivers, and Laban 
We'll talk about this a little bit more. Laban was a consummate deceiver. And deceiving people come to you with really bad news or really good news. Trying to get your attention off of the topic they want to take advantage of you with. Now, Laban makes camp close by Jacob. We don't know how close, but they were close enough that we could get to each other. They were both in the mountains of Gilead. Not too far away. It's interesting. About 1,500 years after this, a very famous, very successful Chinese warrior named Sun Tzu, he's credited with this phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. This appears to have been what Laban was thinking when he chased after and camped close by Jacob. And with his reputation of a deceiver, it's hard to see how he saw Jacob. Each man was seen in the other's eyes as a deceiver. Each man had earned the label. Jacob had been a deceiver. Well, looky there. Some friends from Lake Charles. <laughs> Good to see you guys. So Jacob had been had earned the name of the deceiver long before he came to have faith in God, and he had trouble shirking off some of that behavior, and or Jacob rather, and Laban was a deceiver from soup to nuts, as we might say. The difference between these two guys is not in their moral fiber. Their distant difference is that in one, this heel snatcher, God set his hand on that fella from before he was born. And God had him placed in his redemptive plan as one of the three patriarchs of the people that he was building. This other guy, he's not in that plan. And it's kind of like you see in the days of Jesus where you've got two guys that deny Jesus. One of them was prayed for. Peter, I pray for you that when your faith returns, your faith fail not. And when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. The other one, Judas, no record that Jesus prayed for him. God has his people and he has special compassion on those people. Now, let's let's move on. Verses 26 through 33. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs with temporal and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you surely, now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my household gods? And then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not, have, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. 
And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now, in this scene, Jacob is confronted by Laban. And he comes to him with this offense, this wound you left without letting me kiss my sons, probably talking about grandchildren that Jacob has, and my daughters, the two that he had given to him as wives. He sounds a lot like Pharaoh to me. If you look back in Genesis chapter 12, you might remember how Pharaoh responded to Abraham. Genesis 12, 17 to 19. The Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go away. Laban, he's offended that Jacob had treated him this way, taken his daughters without even giving him the opportunity, going to throw a party for him. Easy to say when you the time for the party has passed. Might he have thrown a party? We don't know. But it's easy to say it after the fact. I would have done this. The deceiver says these things. He points to Jacob's God in his defense. This is why I didn't harm you. Because the God of your father come to me and told me not to say these things. That's why I didn't harm you. Because I could have done it, he says. Laban's not without force. And note his tone. He's offended by the actions of his son-in-law. That's the way he's presenting himself. You did this wrong to me, Pharaoh. To Abraham, why did you do this to me? Same phraseology. Laban says, what have you done? It's very similar to what Pharaoh's response is. What have you done to me? Laban protests that had Jacob been up front with him, things would have been different. It was a practice in that culture to have a going away party. You recall that when Rebecca when Abraham's servant was sent to find Isaac a wife and he found Rebekah, Laban's clan in this area, they wanted her to delay going back with, with Abraham's servant so they could throw her a party, have her a big send-off. You know, it would take days and delay things and the servant said, no, we're going to go now. But this idea of having a go-away party was the culture. Now, we see here that Laban makes known his intention to do great harm, but he doesn't do it because of Jacob's God. And we see here what I think is the real reason that Laban was upset by Jacob's departure. Why did you steal my gods? Other translations refer to them as household idols. Pagan gods. Later on in the time of Israel, they get into this, you know, they get warned by Yahweh. Don't take wives and don't let the religion of the pagan countries infiltrate your camp. 
And we know that so often they did just that. And they built these shrines for pagan worship. And these shrines stole their affections. And once in a while you had a good king come along and he would tear down some or all of them. And the people were incensed. Those things that people set their affections on, they don't want to let them go. And so Laban, he had these idols and they were dear to him. He had kids, you know, but the idols, they're dear to him. Laban knew about the God of Abraham, but he did not know the God of Abraham. And he was not known by him. God knew of Laban, but he didn't know him, hadn't set his affections on him like he had Jacob. Jacob explains why he left. Jacob the deceiver knew that Laban was not a man he could trust. You would have taken your daughters back by force if I hadn't snuck out. Can't trust you. He's indignant. He's indignant that Laban thinks that somebody had taken his household idols, his gods. He says the one that is found with them will have to be put to death. And it says in our text that Jacob didn't know that Rachel had taken them. Rachel, doubtful that he even suspected her. Because, see, Rachel's the wife that he loved. You know, he didn't love Leah, but he got deceived into having Leah as his wife. Rachel's the one he really loved. And Rachel's the one who stole these household idols. His indignant response reveals his belief that no one in his clan had taken them. And he has contempt for the very idea that somebody might have done it. And he throws up in Laban's face again like he did before. In Michael's lesson, we saw this. You changed my wages ten times. We'll see that. Always messing with me, Laban. That's why I treated you the way I did. Laban was given free reign to search Jacob's camp. Go check it out. If anybody has your stuff, they'll be put to death. He didn't find them. He didn't find them in Jacob's tent. He didn't find them in Leah's tent. He didn't find them in the servant's tent. There's another tent yet to go. Here's what we're going to see. Sin in the camp. How people respond. The next couple of verses, Rachel covers her sin. In verse 34, Now Rachel had taken the household items, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord, that I cannot rise for you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but he did not find the idols. Now, Rachel had stolen her father's household idols when he had gone to tend his sheep. Uh, Verse 19 of this chapter says that, um, Now, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. So that's right along with just before Jacob sneaks away. She goes while he's out tending his sheep. He doesn't know what's going on in his tent. and She steals his household gods. No indication that she told anyone. Probably didn't even tell Leah. We know she didn't tell Jacob. Just her little secret. 
In our scene here, she likely overhears the conversation between Jacob and Laban. You know, tents didn't have R13 insulation in the walls or anything like that. Sound travels right through them. And she hid the idols, hoping not to be found out. She's a young woman. She doesn't want to be put to death. And she knows that Jacob is honestly angry at this accusation that somebody stole these gods. So, she put them in this camel's saddlebag, it says. Now, if you've seen movies of people riding camels, you know, they're weird animals, but they had these like large baskets that hung on either side of a little saddle. You sat on the middle. That's you could hit, you could put a small child in one of those. That's they weren't small. So, why did Rachel steal the idols? That's really the question before us. Why did she do it? And the scripture doesn't tell us, so we can't assume what her motives were. But we can read bits of action. She may have had some of her father's pagan religion. She was raised up in that pagan religion. Unless the Lord opens your eyes, you can't have the faith of Abraham. The way she treated the idols leads me to think she wasn't all that serious about her religion. Pagans don't sit on their idols. They treat them with reverence. Rachel didn't treat these with reverence. She may have taken them to spite her father. Let's look back at verses 14 and 15 of this chapter. From the last lesson, we we learned this. Rachel and Leah answered him, uh, Jacob, and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us to you and also completely consumed our money. So the girls are concerned that they don't get a dowry when they leave because, you know, Laban's already spent all that stuff and they don't have anything. So perhaps she and Leah thought we're being robbed by Laban and maybe Rachel thought, yeah, I'll just take something that's precious to him because I'm not getting what's due me. At any rate, she put her husband in a serious position. He and Leah thought they were being, rather, he would be expected to have his favored wife put to death if she was found out. It's clear she hadn't told Jacob. And it's clear that she should expect him, an honorable man, to do what he had sworn. The one who has, is discovered with these should be put to death. So, how often do we fail to consider the consequences of our actions? Sin always has a cost that is more than what it advertises. And there's a, a, a saying, we heard it, we had a, uh, a comedian, Christian comedian as an interim pastor years ago. And he would say, sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay. And I think that's what Rachel is experiencing. She lies to her father so she doesn't have to get up so he can't find what he's looking for. Not even Laban would be so crude to ask her to stand up given the condition that she said she was in. And she dodges the consequences of her sin and she thinks she's getting away with it. 
One commentator observed, Rachel was a true daughter of her father and a match for him in cunning. But she knew little the trouble she was bringing on Jacob and herself by this deceit. Sin always costs more than you think it will. Let's move on. Verses 36 to 42 is Jacob's complaint. 36. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I. Oh, I read too far. I wanted to stop at verse 42. Forget that last bit. I wanted to stop at 42. The God of Abraham, the, the God of the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac has been with me. You would have sent me away empty handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands. So Jacob gets accused of something that he didn't do. There's no evidence that he did it. And he's a, he's building on his indignant response. He's been vindicated by God, he thinks, unaware that his favorite wife is the guilty party. He rehearses his history with Laban, how Laban deceived Jacob several times and really, I don't know, harassed him, treated him not like a son, but like a a laborer. Yet God had prospered Jacob in spite of the trickery, in spite of the deceit of Laban. And Jacob exalts the God who warned Laban. And Jacob identifies with Yahweh, giving him the honor and the wisdom to provide for and vindicate Jacob. Jacob's not boasting of himself here. He's complaining that he's been mistreated, but all the good that's come to him, he's claiming that God done that. It was worth taking note of this. Jacob's complaint of his treatment by Laban is not contested by Laban. It would appear that Laban had accepted this as accurate and just let it pass. He's not going to argue about it. 
And God has seen fit to prosper Jacob, and he promised to make him the father of many people, just as he had promised Abraham and Isaac. And God's promises are not held hostage by his people or his enemies. God's promises aren't hanging in the balance of whether or not you and I are faithful stewards of what he's given us. And it's not hanging on the balance as to whether the president of the United States is a Christian or not. He's not subject to these things. Although his enemies will often confuse, be confused or be angered by God. And the way that they see his hand of providence is not going to be the same way that Christians see it. In Job chapter five, I won't turn there, but. The, the friends of Job had come. And they sat silent for three days, and that was the best counsel they provided for the most part. But in chapter 5, Eliphaz, he talks to, uh, I'm going to turn there. He talks to Job. Job chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Well, this is God being, God chastising Eliphaz, rather. Um, 12 and 13. He, God, frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise on their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. Now, it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 19 and 20, same verses, different book, Paul wrote, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So this brings verse 21 of Paul's letter into view that nobody who is in Christ needs to boast about or give any blind allegiance to any human being. The allegiance we give to faithful teachers is based on them being held up by God as faithful teachers. It's not blind obedience. Men stumble. Men fall. God doesn't. So much of ancient culture and so much of modern culture is based on esteeming humans who will entertain us, rule us, provide for us bread and circuses. We want the convenience of life, the comforts of life, and those that give them to us. That's why in our day and age, people clamor for the national government to give them stuff. Don't want to have to work. Don't want to have to labor. Want to be able to get. Gimme, gimme, gimme. All will be caught in their craftiness. That's what God says. All will be caught in their craftiness. God will expose their wisdom as meaningless. Paul says all things are yours. You are Christ's. God is, Christ is God's. And Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. That's, that's, who, that's who God is. Christ is. The idols that had grabbed Laban's heart are Nothing. Union with Christ is everything. Union with Christ is everything. 
Now, we get to the last part. We got a covenant between Jacob and Laban. Pick up in verse 43, part of which I've already read, so it'll be familiar to you. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are mine, these children are mine, and this, the flock is mine, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now, therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brother, brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there. And Laban said, and they ate there and Laban called it Yegar Sehadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Jacob's got a simpler vocabulary. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid, also Mitzpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, hear this. Here is this heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. The heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness. I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban rose, kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Now, it's interesting to me that Laban did almost all the talking in this passage. Covenant between Jacob and Laban. And the only two words that is recorded as coming out of Jacob's mouth is when he commands his people to gather stones. Everything else is that we see as, as spoken is from Laban. He's desperate, determined to make this covenant. Perhaps you know, he, he makes this statement that your daughters and your children and the flocks are all mine. But what can I do? Go in peace. And I think he's trying to build himself up as the grandiose owner of everything. And he's going to be magnanimous and gracious and let Jacob keep what God had given him. I think that's what Laban's doing in what he says here. Laban initiates the covenant, the terms of which are not spelled out. It's a covenant. These stones are a witness. You won't pass. I won't pass to do harm. That's all we know about the covenant. Gill observed this. God can put a bridle into the mouth of a wicked man to restrain their malice. And then, though they have no love for his people, they will pretend to it and try to make a merit of necessity. See, we can pretend for the sake of appearances, and that may be what Laban was up to. It might have been just one more deception to make his situation more agreeable to himself. Because that's what Laban lives for, is to have life agreeable to him. Now, they gathered stone to serve as a witness. This is a common practice in the day. You see it throughout the Old Testament. Each man gives the, the place a name. Common practice. 
It seems the intent of both men was to put their history to behind them and let bygones be bygones. Now Laban calls Jacob's God to watch over them. And he warns Jacob to care for his daughters and any other wives he may take because Yahweh is a witness between them. And Laban calls on the God of Abraham and he calls on the God of Nahor, Abraham's father, Terah. That was his God. That's back in Genesis 12, 11. Some believe that Terah and his clan were moon worshippers. I don't know if that's true or not, but they had these idols. And it could be that Laban's household idols were connected to that cultic religion. So Jacob submits himself to the God of his father, Isaac, and Abraham by implication. And Jacob sacrificed to God and shared a meal with Laban to seal the deal. Thomas Griffith noted two men, neither of whom trusted the other, said, in effect, I cannot trust you out of my sight. The Lord must be the watchman between us. If we and our goods are to be kept safe from each other. And this certainly does primary, does the primary interpretation differ from the spiritual application. And it conveys a necessary admonition against the misuse of scripture, even by spiritual people. So you got to be honest in your dealings with men because God sees all things and he will not suffer liars lightly. So we don't know if Laban was with putting on a front, seems that a way. Not too sure about Jacob. He didn't say much. But Laban wakes up early in the morning, blesses his children, blesses his grandchildren, and he goes home. And this is the last we hear of Laban in the Bible. He was a sad example of many today who think only of wealth and never profit from any spiritual opportunities. Laban was no better than those who have never heard of God In fact, he was worse off because he had heard of God. And the more knowledge from the revelation you have of the God who created all things, the more responsible you are to him on judgment day. So what's the conclusion of all of this? Sin in the camp is a serious problem. Whether that camp is the family or whether it's the assembly of saints. Sin that is covered up brings consequences harming those who are close to the sinner. None of us likes to have our sin brought out into the open, but we cannot afford to hide it from ourselves and from those it affects. It's not hidden from God. May He grant us repentance and humility. We cannot be a properly functioning member of the body of Christ if we're harboring sin in our heart and hardening our heart against the work of the Spirit to call us to repentance. Deceit was involved in Laban, uh, Jacob's departure. Deceit was involved in Rachel's hiding the idols. Deceit was a characteristic of Laban's life. And both Laban and Jacob protested the actions of the others. Puffing up and defending his own self, his own actions. Rachel seemed to have learned from her father. It's unhealthy for us to blame our decisions on our circumstances. That's people's natural condition. And when you look at trials in our nation, the defense people often bring up his environment, his childhood. Had a hard childhood that excuses the fact that he murdered his mother. 
That type of rationale is, un, is not uncommon in our day. Dysfunction in a family or congregation isn't uncommon. And it's mostly the product of sin, sinful speech and actions that cause division and bitterness. And often we tend to just ignore those things and tolerate those things and they burn in our soul if they're not dealt with. We're called to repent and seek reconciliation regardless of whether we have sinned against or have been sinning against others. Self-defense is not one of the weapons we've been given as Christians. Self-humiliation is the position we've been called to. We're to think more highly of others than of self. Seeking harmony and unity within earthly and spiritual families. That wasn't the perspective of the people we read about today. It is what we're called to if we name and claim Christ. If you have not the Spirit of God within you, your company is with Laban. You have no victory over sin, but face certain judgment and wrath from the Creator God against whom you are rebelling. The only hope for mankind is to find refuge in the rock of offense. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the trial of the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me and saw my works 40 years. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says in another time, he says in an acceptable time, I have heard you and the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Sinner, do not harden your heart. Cry out to your maker to give you life. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, answer him. Do not see that you do not refuse him who speaks. You and I who have the spirit of the living God within us ought not, ought not to be caught up in patterns of sin, self-exaltation, bitterness, whatever so easily ensnares us. The scripture that I read a minute ago is in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 11 and 12. No, that was Hebrews 3 and 4. I'm going to go to Hebrews 11 and 12. And... That scripture goes on to say, when we get to 12, if I can flip open to that page. Here we go. Starting in verse 1, the second part of the verse. Familiar passage. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it goes on to say in verse 16, oh, I wanted to go through verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostilities, hostility from sinners against himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you do not become weary and discouraged in your souls. And in verse 16, the first part of it, 
he's talking about, well, we'll end up, in, we'll start in verse seven, uh, 15, looking carefully at yourself, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many have become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel sold his food of birthright. See, these are the types of sin that so easily entangle us, that can infect the camp of the body of Christ. Simple things that cause division. Simple things that come so easily to us. I get offended by something you said. I'm going to meditate on that. And I'm going to just... I'm not going to say anything to you, but I'm going to hate you for a while. That's not the way we should be. When we seek to live in harmony with our earthly and spiritual family, this pleases God and the Spirit will encourage us and equip us to pursue peace with other other people, looking carefully how we walk. As I mentioned earlier, all of this is ours. All of this is ours if we're in Christ. All of this is ours because of our union with Christ as we consider Him the one who endured such hostility from sinners. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, through that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you, through His poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8-9 See, when there's sin in the camp, we need the grace that comes from the throne of the living God. John wrote, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. The love of God secures us in this all-encompassing union with the Lamb of God who took away our sin. Union with Christ. I want to rehearse right quickly what this means. It means you're found in Christ. And I've got scriptures for all these that I won't go into. You're found in Christ. You're preserved in Christ. You're saved and sanctified in Christ. You walk in Christ. You labor in Christ. You obey in Christ. You die in Christ. You live in Christ. You conquer in Christ. You can't do none of them apart from being in Christ. I want to close with a short reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 18. Which I read part of this earlier, but I'm going to read it. Let no one deceive himself. Let We've been talking about deceiving people today. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you seem wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become Truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is the sum of it. Let no person who names Christ glory in men, not your favorite preacher, not the Apostle Paul, 
Not anything in this world warrants our reverence and adoration. What do the Roman Catholics call it? Veneration. We're not worshiping Mary. We venerate Mary. Yeah, veneration. Anything in this world, don't let it grab hold of your heart. All things in the next world, in the age to come, all that is ours because of Christ. We belong to Christ. We have union with Christ. And He has union with the Father. All things are yours. We need not be clamoring after things of this world because all things are ours if we're in Christ. He secures eternity for us. He brings to us. He is the fountain of life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these dear people that have gathered here. And thank You for Your Word, which alone is true. Let the truth of Your Word and not anything that I may have misspoke resonate in the souls of all of us today, Lord, that we would see how easy sin comes in our own self and how horrible it is. So give us repentance this day that You might be honored with us. Give us joy today at being found in You and have mercy on those who are perishing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.